Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians. And we begin chapter 3 this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. You know that when we examine a passage of Scripture or when we critique a sermon even, there are some diagnostic questions that we need to ask about the text or about the sermon. Uh, One of the questions is, what does it say about God? After all, the Bible is God's story. What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the gospel? But as you know, in God's sovereignty, God has chosen to use means to communicate His will and to reveal His message to us. And the primary means that God has chosen is men, inspired by God. And we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of Scripture, that it's all inerrant, that it's complete, it's sufficient, and it's exactly what we need. And one of the men that God used in an amazing way to reveal His Word and will to us is the Apostle Paul. And this morning in today's text, we're going to see the heart of the Apostle Paul like few other places in the Scripture. How he understood his own calling, as he understood his mission and stewardship, as he calls it, in the world. If there's anything we should know about Paul so far is that he was a man of prayer. Ephesians is only six chapters long, and a number of times in those six chapters, Paul stops to pray. Can you imagine writing a letter and not be able to finish a page without stopping to pray over it? And that's what Paul does here. We, we see, for example, in chapter 1, verses 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Well, here in chapter 3, we find the second of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. And it's sort of humorous. Paul starts off in verse 1, and he's about to pray, you can tell, and then he says, no, I need to tell you something else that puts this prayer in context. And for 13 verses, he has a parenthesis in the middle of the beginning of his prayer and to the body of his prayer. For example, here in chapter 3, he says, for this reason I, Paul, and he's about to say, bow my knees to pray for you. And then for 13 verses, he adds a parenthesis. And then look at verse 14, he starts over again. And he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So what in the world could have been so important that it delayed Paul's prayer for 13 verses? Well, it's a message. And the message is simply the mystery of grace. And that so happens to be the title of the message this morning, the mystery of grace. So let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. 
To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which all ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, a mystery is something that most of us like. On a rainy afternoon like this, we may turn on the television and watch a good old Sherlock Holmes mystery movie. Or pick up an Agatha Christie novel, a whodunit. Well, Paul used the word mystery a number of times in these first 10 verses of chapter 3, and none of them mean a whodunit. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Greek word is mysterion, which was one of Dr. Crystal's favorite Greek words. A mystery is something that has been hidden in the past up until this point, but now God in His sovereignty has seen fit to reveal in the present. And I won't leave you in suspense. I won't ask you to wait to the fourth point of the sermon to tell you what the mystery that's been revealed is. In fact, we see it very clearly here in verse 6. You probably picked up on it as I was reading. He says, here's the mystery. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul is saying is that there's only one gospel. God only has one eternal plan of redemption, and it includes all people. Red and yellow, black and white, Jew or Gentiles. God has made one path to reconciliation with Himself, and that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And God is pleased to call together people from every tribe and tongue and nation into something new that He's creating called the church. That was something that no one understood up until the time of the Apostle Paul, and now this is a mystery that has been revealed. In fact, the Apostle Paul carries this theme throughout almost all of his epistles. If you'll turn back just three or four pages in your Bible to the book of Galatians, you'll come to a very important text of Scripture, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, where Paul is saying to the church at Galatia, the same thing he's saying to those in the church at Ephesus. That there's no distinction now in the church between Jew and Gentile. Here's what he says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male, excuse me, slave or free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now this is what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 11, that Abraham is the root and Israel was the trunk and the individual Jewish people were the branches, but God now has grafted in these wild olive shoots called the Gentiles. But it's not two separate trees, it's one tree. And Paul says a true Jew is one who's a Jew of the heart, right? Now this was something that would have baffled and confused and thoroughly bumfuzzled many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries. Because they had come to believe that there were two paths and never the twain should meet. If they would give any hope for a Gentile and his salvation, it was not certainly becoming part of Israel. And yet God used Paul to reveal this mystery, the mystery of grace. If you have your outline today, four points I want to make. Number one, we'll look at the messenger of the mystery. 
the revelation of the mystery, the means of the revelation, and then the wisdom of God. So point number one, who is the messenger? Well, it is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul seems like a very unlikely candidate for someone who would call the church into more inclusivism. That is to invite Jew and Gentile to come together in one body because Paul described himself at one point in his life as a thoroughgoing, zealous Jew. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, blameless. Here was a guy who like most of his contemporaries looked at Gentiles as fodder for the flames of hell. But one day on a Damascus road, Jesus, in his risen form, confronted the Apostle Paul with his own sinfulness, drove him into the dust, blinded him, and changed his life forever. Gave him eternal life and gave him a reason for living and commissioned him as an apostle to the Gentiles. No one could have been a more unlikely candidate to be apostle to the Gentiles than the Apostle Paul. Now go back to Ephesians 3 verse 1 and let's just uh, walk through these verses together. Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now Paul, very literally, was a prisoner at this point. Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians from a Roman prison, specifically from house arrest. You remember from our study of the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys back to the city of Jerusalem where he was going to distribute an offering to the Jewish believers that he had collected among the Gentile churches. But while he was there in Jerusalem, he went down to the temple to worship. There were some Jewish people who were his enemies who saw him and made certain declarations about Paul. They said, this man speaks against the Old Testament law. He speaks against Moses, but the, the straw that broke the camel's back was that he has brought some Gentiles into the temple where they're not permitted to go. Now that was demonstrably not true, but the crowd believed it, almost caused a riot. The Roman soldiers intervened and they snatched Paul away before they could rip him to pieces. They placed him in the garrison there. And then Paul's nephew came and revealed to the garrison guard that there was a plot against Paul's life that in the morning where they were to transfer Paul, he was going to be assassinated. So under cover of darkness, under a large force of cavalry soldiers, they spirited Paul away to Caesarea. And there he stood under arrest and he met with the governors, a couple of different governors. But what he was doing, he was appealing his case up the ladder because remember as we saw last week, Paul was a Roman citizen and he had the right to do that. Now making all of that historical point to say this, Paul was literally a prisoner, but notice what he says next. He says, of Christ Jesus. Paul understood the sovereignty of God that nothing happened outside of God's permission, right? And so Paul did not view himself a prisoner of the Romans or of the Jews. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He says, for your sake. He was speaking to Gentiles, and of course that was true. If Paul hadn't felt so strongly that Gentiles should be part of the church, he never would have been arrested those Jewish people turned on Paul because of his relationship with the Gentiles in the church. But Paul says this in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Now, most of you that grew up in Baptist churches, you hear the word stewardship, you grab your wallet, right? Because pastor's about to talk about money. That's not the case today. Stewardship is any trust that one with authority places in another over his property. 
So that could be time or talent or treasure. Anything that someone who owns something entrusts to another person to manage is a stewardship. Well, Paul says this gospel that is effectual to all people has been entrusted to him from God who owns it as a stewardship to the Apostle Paul. And so he's going to be held responsible for how he takes care of it. That's why he could not be silenced. Even though men tried to silence the message, Paul could not be silenced because he knew one day he would give an account to God. In fact, this same word stewardship is found when Paul describes his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. You remember it? It's your pastor's life verse. It's the first sermon I ever preached here. Remember Paul in describing himself said, if you're going to regard us, speaking of pastors, regard us with two terms as servants of Jesus Christ. That's a word that means slave, literally, not just any slave, but the lowest slave. And a second word, he says, stewards of the mysteries of God. That is, pastors are those who have been entrusted with the word to make known God's will to the people. And so that kept Paul humble because he knew that this did not originate with him. It's something God called him to that he one day would give an account for. And so here's the messenger. It is the Apostle Paul, the most unlikely of candidates who takes this message that there's one gospel for Jew and Gentile alike. And then he moves on to verse 3 and he talks about this revelation. Look at verse 3. He says, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, mysterion, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that is, the, the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, I've already made reference to this mystery earlier in this letter. He did it in chapter 1, but specifically in chapter 2. Just look back at verses 11 and 12. Remember, Paul is speaking of the relationship between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And he said the Gentiles, before they were saved, were far away. He says they were the uncircumcision. He says in verse 12 that they were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then verse 13, that most important of words, but, but God, in Christ Jesus, you've been formerly far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so Paul says, this is what I'm talking about, that the gospel is for Jew and Gentile. Then he says this, it has been revealed to me. Now you know that the very last book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And in that book, another one of Christ's apostles, the apostle John, had revealed to him some magnificent truths, particularly about things that were going to happen in the last days, how the world was going to end and how heaven was going to be. And he was told to write down what he saw. And we have that recorded in the book of Revelation. But the word revelation, as you know, the root is reveal, something hidden, the cloth's been taken off, and now it's made known. And so this revelation has been given to Paul, that all are one in Christ. The question is, how did he do that? Paul, after all, wasn't one of the original 12. Paul wasn't there to walk the streets of Galilee with uh, Jesus he came to faith after the resurrection. What does Paul mean? Well, back again to Galatians, just two or three pages back in Galatians chapter 1, Paul answers that question about how he has this revelation. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Remember, there were those who looked down upon Paul's apostleship because he was not one of the original 12. And yet, here's what he says. Verse 11, Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. So what he's saying, I didn't make it up. This is not something that was handed down to me from another human. I didn't make it up myself. Verse 12, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now you have to read between the lines there. What Paul is saying is, remember when he was saved, he was blinded, his sight was restored. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and hear all about what Jesus did from Peter and John and the others. He went into the wilderness out in Arabia. And I take it there, the Lord in some miraculous way revealed the gospel to Paul. And then after a three-year period, then he went up to Jerusalem and had fellowship with the other apostles. The, the point is this, Paul was just as much an apostle called by Jesus as any of the other apostles. And there are those who would tell you, you can't pay as much attention to the Pauline literature of the New Testament as you do the Gospels, because after all, Paul didn't walk and talk with Jesus. We have to dismiss a lot of the things Paul says and believe only the Gospels. There's a great Greek word for that. It's called bologna. <laughs> Don't you believe it? The book of Ephesians and Galatians is ever much as inspired and inerrant as the Gospel of John. And so we can take every bit of it as truth from God. All Scripture is inspired and God-breathed, including the Pauline literature. So we have the messenger, the Apostle Paul. We have the revelation through Paul, through Jesus Christ, by His Spirit. And thirdly, as we go back to Ephesians 3, the means. How did He do it? How did he do it? Verse 7, he speaks of this revelation. He says, of which I was made a minister, that means a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And so Paul always understood that his being an apostle was not happenstance. Paul wasn't sitting around Jerusalem at the local Starbucks and said to his buddy, I think it's time for a career change. That's not what happened. Paul always understood this was something supernatural. God had called him to this in his sovereignty. And he describes himself in verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. This is kind of the other side of the coin where Paul says in another place that he's the chief of sinners. This is like it. He says, I'm the least of all the saints. So, so Paul didn't bring his resume to the church at Jerusalem and said, look, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I speak a number of languages. I'm intellectually elite. I deserve to be a leader in the church. That's not how you get to be a leader in the church. Paul was called by God. And he understood any authority that he had was delegated authority 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, look, I'm not qualified. If you're looking for a qualified leader, don't look at Paul. He said, I'm the least of the saints, the chief of sinners. Paul understood that, that he was saved by grace and called by grace. Paul was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. He was part and parcel and party to a murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. But don't for one minute take this as that Paul didn't understand his authority as an apostle. He did, and he used that authority humbly, yet effectively. He knew he was just as called and just as much an apostle as, as any of the others. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to try not to run you around anymore after this, but I want you to see this with your own eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because Paul speaks here that God is pleased and rejoices in using unlikely people for his own glory. In fact, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's explaining to them why not many of the up and in crowd are in the church. The intellectually elite, the rich, the famous, the beautiful people. This is what he said, 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. In today's vernacular, he's saying, look around the room. You might want to do that just now. Just kind of look around the room and see who's around you. And then he says this, not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. By the way, that, that's not a compliment he's paying us all. He's saying, look around you, church. It's not many of the beautiful people here, not many of the intellectually elite, not many that the world would consider worthy of praise. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish or the base things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. Verse 29 tells us why he does this. So that no man may boast before God. Our God will not share his glory with another, right? Remember back in the Old Testament when Gideon was going to raise an army to fight the Lord's enemies? And God says, no, it's too many. Too many. Send some of them home. And he got down to just a handful of men. Why? Because God knew if they went out with that mighty army and destroyed the enemies of the Lord, they would say, we did it, right? But as it ended up, it was surely something that God did. And God will not share his glory with another. Paul indicates the reason that God rejoices in using common people like you and I to take the most incredible message in the world to the nations is that he gets the glory. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. The means was a common servant that no one else probably would have thought would be the means to take the message. So we've seen the messenger the revelation, the means, and finally, the wisdom. What I mean by that is the reason that he did it. Verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Do you remember that when we started this series back in January, I said that Ephesians is sometimes called the treasure house of the Lord's people? It's where Paul describes the wealth of our blessings those blessings that have accrued to us by virtue of being in Christ. Well, here he says it in a little different way in verse 8. He says, it was given to him this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable 
riches of Christ. I like that word, don't you? It's a nautical term. It's a term from the ocean. When sailors were sailing into a port, they had a rope with a rock or a piece of metal on one end, and they would throw it out to see how deep the water was, lest they crash upon the rocks. And when the water was too deep and they ran out of rope, they would say it's unfathomable because a fathom was the, the, the unit of measure. That is, it's too deep to measure. Now read that verse again with that meaning. To me, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unmeasurable riches of Christ. Christ's grace is so wonderful, two wonderful words, it's too deep to measure. Paul viewed that as his great privilege of preaching those truths. Verse 9, he says, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And so Paul viewed it as his specific task as an apostle to the Gentiles to turn on the light. That truth had always been there. They simply didn't understand it. And so Paul shines a million candle spotlight on the truth. And what truth is that? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 10 tells us why. So that. By the way, as you're studying your Bible, either alone or when your Sunday school class or somebody like me is up here preaching, and you're wondering, what does he mean by this? And you come to the phrase, so that, <laughs> underline it. Put a star beside it. He's about to tell you something very important. So he says, he's used Paul to reveal this mystery so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 2 that, God was doing with these two groups, one which was far away, the Gentiles, and another which was close up, the Jews, that through Christ and the cross, the shed blood of Jesus, he was bringing the two into one family, right? He was adopting them into one household, and they were being built up, he said, as a dwelling place of the Lord. Peter says we are all living stones. Paul says that the foundation of this dwelling place is the teaching of the apostles, and the prophets, Christ is the cornerstone. But he not only uses the image of a building, also uses the image of a body. And he says he's doing something new. He says the body is one, and yet it has many members. And here's the marvelous truth. Some of those members are Jews, and some of them are Gentiles. Some of them are black, and some of them are white. Some of them speak Mandarin Chinese, and some of them speak English and some of them are deaf and mute. But all of them are essential, right? All of them work together so that the body of Christ presents something that is beautiful and graceful that the world can look at and say, wow. But now Paul takes it a step farther. And he says it's not just so that the lost and dying world could look at this new thing that God has created and say, wow. It's so that the angels in heaven can look at it and say, wow. Look at verse 10 again. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God, something is manifold, which means it's multifaceted. It's not monolithic, in other words. It's got all kinds of nuance to it. And we can study it 
all the time and always find something new to be impressed with. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known how? Through the church. So it's the church's function and job to display the manifold wisdom of God to whom? Certainly to a lost and dying world, but Paul says to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? It's the angels. The angels. Now what is the job of the angels? They're certainly the messengers of God. The word angelos means messenger. But every time we see angels almost in the Bible, what are they doing? They're praising God, right? Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim and the cherubim. We see the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, sitting on his throne. His robes fill the temple. What are the angels doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. They're praising the Lord, right? We go to the book of Revelation. What does the apostle John see the angels in heaven doing? They're singing and praising the Lord, right? This is what angels do. Now, listen closely. Write this down. It's the most important thing I'm going to say all day. The reason that God has saved you and I, one of the reasons that he has saved you and I and created his church is to give the angels a reason to praise him. That's right. Now why does God do whatever he does? For his own what? Glory. God created the stars, the moon, and the planet for his own glory. And the angels rejoiced, didn't they, when they saw it. God chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and separated a people unto himself for his own glory. At just the right moment in time, God sent forth his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for sins for his own glory. Since then, God has been putting together from all over the world, from every epoch of history, from every language group, from every cultural context, a tapestry of people making them into something new called his body, the church. Why is he doing it? For his own glory. In other words, so that he might be praised. And the primary praise leaders in the universe are the angels in heaven. So that's why I say one of the reasons that God has chosen to reveal this mystery through the Apostle Paul is to give the angels something to praise God about. And I would say this, if the angels in heaven have something to praise God about who don't understand and have never had access to his forgiveness, how much more so sinners like us who are deserving of God's wrath and hell, but instead have, reserved, have deserved his, his punishment and his damnation, but instead have received his mercy and grace, how much more should we praise the Lord, right? The Bible says if we don't praise the Lord, the very rocks are going to cry out, right? Let's not let the rocks do what we were intended to do. Let's give God praise and glory every day for his salvation. Let's be reminded like Paul that we were undeserving. Let's have the same attitude that we're the chief of sinners, that we don't deserve to have this gift of grace. And yet we view it as a stewardship, that we don't hide it under a bushel, but we take it to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our classmates so that God would receive the praise and glory that he's due. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his heart is 
on display today. Here's a guy that was a rebel by his own admission, a blasphemer, a murderer, someone who was full of arrogance and pride, and yet, Lord, you chose to save him. Not only that, you chose to call him and to use him. And Father, he never forgot where he came from, that he always remembered it was because of your choice and, and your mercy. And Lord, I, I pray the same for all of us here today. Many of us who've been walking with you for decades, Lord, help us never to lapse into a thought that we're saved because we deserved it. Lord, help us always to remember that being a part of this body that you're creating is a high privilege and a stewardship. And one day we'll be held accountable for the gifts that we've been given and how we've used them. So Father, I pray that every member of our church would know and use their spiritual gifts for the edification of this body and for the glory ultimately of God. Father, we count it a great privilege that uh, you did not create many paths to heaven, but only one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so whether we are Jewish or Gentile or any other culture in between, Lord, we um, know by your promised and revealed word that if we call upon the name of Jesus, we'll be saved and we will be adopted into your family. And Father, we will become members of the household of God that he is putting together. And Father, we're grateful to be a part of that. And Lord, we want others to be a part of it too. And so Lord, we intercede on behalf of family members, neighbors, those in our sphere of influence, Lord, as far as we know, do not know Jesus. So, Father, as we're about to part company, we pray that we would, like Paul, count it a stewardship. Lord, that we have the privilege of managing what has been entrusted to us, and that is the gospel. And so, Lord, we know that you expect us to, to invest and to bear fruit with that in the time that we have. So, Father, we pray we'd all be faithful to do that. Father, I pray if there's one even in this room today that does not know Jesus in the free pardon of sin, that you'd make them desperate for him today. Father, show them that like the Gentiles, they're far away from you, without Christ, helpless and hopeless in the world. Draw them to yourself by your Spirit. Father, give them the faith to believe. And Lord, for those of us who are saved and, and believers here today, we pray you would encourage us today by your word that we would part company today more zealous for the name of Jesus than when we entered and better equipped to serve you with our lives than ever before. Use us, Father, in short, to glorify yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.